Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you, Bill? I'm doing well, Seth. Excellent. Uh, for the third week in a row, we have our pal and historian John Parshall on the show with us. John, how are you doing this morning? I am very well, thanks. Very, very good, very good. Uh, this week, we're going to, as I said last week, we're going to put a bow on the Battle of Midway. Uh, our first two episodes on Midway covered the preparation for the great event, as well as the meat of the battle, uh, all of or most of which occurred on the June 4th, 1942. Uh, now, while the meat, as I said, occurred on June 4th, the battle did not actually end for another few days. Uh, the action on June 5th, such as it was, was nothing if uh, if not anticlimactic. After all the fighting that happened the previous day, all the successful attacks that happened the previous day, the air groups of Enterprise and Hornet searched for and did not find anything of any real value that remained of the Japanese fleet. Uh, what they did find, however, was a destroyer, a lone destroyer that suffered under one of the largest aerial onslaughts on a single vessel yet executed by the U.S. Navy only to emerge completely unscathed. Uh, with that being said, we're going to pick up the story on June 6th and wrap this beast up. Um, June 6th, John, because like I said, John, uh, June 5th was was completely anticlimactic. June 6th had a little more action to it. Um, you know, we're, the carrier forces are catching up to what's left of the Japanese fleet, and they run into a couple of cruisers that actually ran into one another earlier in that night or the early morning, did they not? Yeah, they had collided actually with each other on the night of 4th, 5th June. Okay. Um, they This was elements of Cruiser Division 7, uh, a, a quartet of heavy cruisers that were racing in to try to do uh, a naval gunfire bombardment of Midway itself. And of course, mm -hmm. while Yamamoto was deliberating on the night of the 4th, you know, do I keep going or do I call this battle off? You know, this force is continuing to race in. Yamamoto eventually, you know, says, yeah, we're done and sends out the orders to Crew Div 7, okay, haul about and fall back on the main body. In the process of doing that, they cite a submarine. Uh, they initiate emergency evasive maneuvers, and two of the cruisers, Mikuma and Mogami, go crunch. Yeah. And the result is the Mogami is very heavily damaged. Her bow is, you know, bent like a at a 90-degree angle. But Crucially, too, Makuma uh, is gashed in her oil tanks along the side, and so she's leaking oil and leaving a trail behind this pair of damaged cruisers as they're trying to limp out of the battle area. And uh, lo and behold, on the 6th, they get found. Yeah, it's kind of like breadcrumbs uh, going to Grandma's house there, isn't it? It's, it's... Right. Yeah, the uh, Enterprise SPDs and, and Yorktown's mixed in with them, of course, and then the Hornet SPDs. This is when Hornet actually actually gets in a couple of licks, really, on the battle. Yeah, and they really just torched Mykuma. I mean, if you look yeah. at the pictures, and and there's some very very brief footage of the ship burning, uh, shot by Cleo Dobson's uh, SPD as they're pulling away. Actually, as they they flew out later to go find it again. Um, it is just it it's is a mess. yeah. Well, the, the crucial decisions at this point, after this collision, Mogami's damage control officer realizes that he's got a time bomb, in essence, and that he's got, you know, these huge Type 93 long lance torpedoes, you know, loaded in their tubes. And they have very minimal protection around those tubes. And if, as seems likely, we're going to be on the receiving end of an air attack, I'm going to get rid of these damned things. So he jettisons Mogami's torpedoes. Makuma makes the decision, no, we're not going to jettison ours. And yes, when those air attacks come in on the 6th mm -hmm. and they hit Makuma, some of those torpedoes detonate. And these are one-ton warheads. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, it's an enormous, actually, it's half a ton. But it, it's a big kaboom. And there's a lot it's of... the biggest torpedo in the world. Yeah, yeah it's at the, the time. biggest torp in the world. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it it makes a mess of Makuma and, and opens up her seams on her bottom. I mean, these are big, big explosions. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look and, you know, the, the, this is one of the, you know, we, we, we often forget when we're talking about a naval battle, specifically a carrier battle, that there are human beings involved. 
you know, yes. we're talking about pilots and we talk about, you know, Dusty Cleese and, 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 and Tomonaga and people like that. But these are, they're human beings that man these vessels. And if you look at the imagery of Mykuma after the SBD attack, you can see the Japanese sailors on the stern of the ship. And I mean, yes. these, and highly unlikely they survived. Very few of them are going to survive. Um, because what ends up happening during the midst of the final air attack, there's a pair of destroyers that are moving in to try to take survivors off of Makuma. And because of the air attack, they have to skedaddle. And mm -hmm. so, again, yeah, you can see in those photographs, there are also guys that have shimmied down lines that are in the water, bobbing around alongside her stern as well. All those guys are going to die. Um, you know, Makuma has a crew uh, off the top of my head. It's an 888 man crew, 700. Some of those gentlemen are going to, are going to perish. Uh, the Americans are only going to pull out three of them alive from the water in the subsequent days. It's really, really grim. And, and <laughs> an amazing parallel. There's 888 sailors killed when Indianapolis is sunk, you know, three, mm -hmm. three years later, but, um, that's yeah. the precise number. Um, yeah. you know, these, these cruisers and, and this kind of presages, um, a loss that we're going to talk about later on the American side where sailors in the water are also killed when something bad happens, but yeah. I don't want to jump ahead too far. Well, we could, that's a, that's a good segue into what we want to talk about actually is, is Yorktown. So Yorktown is hit multiple times on the fourth, you know, first by a dive bomber strike. And then she's hit by here, use torpedo strike and she goes dead in the water and she lists and they, and she's abandoned. However, she doesn't sink. Mm -hmm. And, and this is Before kind of a character. She's abandoned though. She's her da The damage control done on that carrier is absolutely remarkable. It's, there's it's a, unbelievable. There's a period of time when they, they were able, they got the engines restored and they're making 20, 20 knots. Right. Yeah. 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 She was able, she was able to keep pace with the mm -hmm. rest of the American fleet after the dive bombing attack. Yep. And this, this is, this and is, remember, a, this is when, when she was repaired after Coral Sea in Pearl Harbor, the remarkable repair where Nimitz came aboard and said, you have 72 hours or something like that to get her underway. Um, her superheaters and her boilers were not repaired. So mm -hmm. she's got just standard boilers without the superheaters, which really allow her to kick it into high gear and go flank speed. So that's one of the repairs that was not conducted in order to get her underway for the Battle of Midway. And she's still able to get it, her, her engines back up, her, her boilers back up to the point where she's making 20 knots yeah. after the dive bombing yeah. attack. Yeah. And I mean, when they, when she's hit by the torpedo plane attack, John, you said this in the last episode, you know, they think they're hitting an undamaged carrier. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. In yeah, fact, I, they think I, this, this is, they don't think this is the Yorktown because they funk, think they sunk it right. in Coral Sea. That's correct. Yeah, um, it, it really is not until that final torpedo attack on, on June 4th that they put paid to her. Um, so she then drifts. We're trying to bring a tug in to haul her out of the battlefield. I believe that's the Vireo. Mm -hmm. um, and was. unfortunately for Yorktown on the morning of the 7th, uh, the Japanese have sent a submarine to go and take a look for her. And that submarine does find her, executes a brilliant attack, manages to get inside the ASW screen, launches a spread of torpedoes. One of them hits the destroyer Hammond and just blows her in two, sinks her almost immediately. And then uh, Yorktown is hit as well. And that's that's the end. That's the coup de grace, yeah. You know, the thing that I yeah, find Yorktown, interesting. The screen, the destroyer screen is put around the, the ship's as right. Hammond's trying to assist Yorktown with damage control, yes. specifically to prevent, and I think it was I-168, I, I yeah. think it was the submarine, specifically to prevent this from happening. Our ASW wasn't very good in those days. And, yeah, uh, or, or he got a good thermocline layer or something. Um, he was subjected to, you know, Tanabe, the, the commander of the submarine, is subjected to a, a brutal depth charge attack that damn near kills him. Um, but at the very last moment manages to, to get out of the area. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that and it, is the end of the Yorktown, unfortunately. It, it, yeah. It's important to note, though, that, you know, I mean, she's still floating. She's listing, but she's still afloat on the morning of the 7th. And so much so that, you know, as you said, that there was a tug coming to bring her out and haul her back to Pearl. They, they had put a salvage party aboard the ship. Yes. 
and, and you know, they were cutting heavy materials. They were cutting some of the five inch guns off. They were shoving what airplanes were in the hangar out. Yeah. And, and there were, I mean, had that thing not been torpedoed by the submarine, it very likely would have been pulled out of there. Nearly would have survived. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. During yeah. a, a sudden typhoon or something like that. Yeah. She's going to make port. And it's, 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 that it's is, a, huh? It's What's hard. That? It's it is. Yeah. It, it is because, well, but that's the thing you see with this class of carrier too, the Yorktown class carriers is these things were tough as nails. They were hard as woodpecker lips, man. I mean, because Yorktown dies a hard death Hornet, you know, dies, dies by a thousand <laughs> cuts, you know, yeah. and enterprise never dies. Right. And, and it's just, I mean, these things were built to last, man. I mean, these, these okay, are the Maytag washers of the aircraft carriers of World War II. Yorktown, you know, when it was doing those final combat air patrols, every time they saw incoming aircraft, they would they would neutralize their gasoline lines with carbon dioxide because they're afraid of fire spreading, which is exactly what happened on the Japanese side during this battle. Yep. And so many of their comp cap airplanes took off with like 50 gallons of gasoline in their yep. tanks because they couldn't fully fuel them. Their damage control was terrific before and after, and, and it would have been. There's no doubt in my mind it, it would have. They would have saved the ship had the submarine not oh, yeah. gotten inside the screen. Yeah, and and the skipper of the Yorktown at this point is watching all of this unfold from, as I recall, USS Astoria, which yep. would play a big role later in the Guadalcanal Battle of Savo Island. Yeah. But um, yeah, nasty, nasty. Right, she, you know, you got to wonder, and and again, we don't try not to do what ifs, but you got to wonder had Yorktown survived how that would, I mean, she would have been in the yard for a long time. Let's be real. I mean, this is June. Yeah. She'd have probably been in the yard at, at, at least. least. There's damage least. they had. They still had to fix from when it was in Pearl Harbor after but, Coral Sea, right? But it's plausible that she could have, you know, with round the clock work, she could have possibly made it back out there in October, maybe. Right. Maybe, maybe, but probably by November. And I mean, that weight of that, that could have, that could have made things a hell of a lot different around the seas of Guadalcanal. Of course it didn't, but it could. Uh, on the same note, of course, one can say that if Yamaguchi had maneuvered here, you in a more rational manner, uh, the Japanese could have preserved her for action in, in those campaigns as well. But there's what is on both sides. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, the end the battle's over okay when when yorktown goes down that's it, it it's she it's it the battle the battle is done everybody all right you know party's over let's go home everybody Admiral goes home Fletcher is watching from which ship at this point he crossed the he's on astoria he, yeah he shifted the flag to astoria as well right yeah. okay early yeah yeah when when they abandoned he was he mm-hmm. was on asty and, and he stayed there um the spruance there, there's a perception that spruance won the battle and yet Fletcher was in overall command. Why does that uh, hang around still to this day? I mean, I have my I, own opinions, but I want to hear what you guys got to say. I, I think it hangs around because, uh, you know, Spruance is enshrined in Samuel Elliott Morrison's histories, which are the most important histories on the war uh, when they emerge and, and remain that way for, geez, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, I would say. Uh, Morrison did not like Fletcher, um, was complicit, I think, in helping to sort of ruin Fletcher's reputation. And since Spruance was in command of the carriers that end up doing uh, the bulk of the damage later on in the battle, you know, he ends up walking away looking like as the victor. Yeah. Uh, well, well, King didn't like yeah. Fletcher either, right? King did not like Fletcher. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have a fair number of things to say about that. The, the, the person that has the most things to say, of course, is John Lundstrom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, and you'll get to that, of course, in the aftermath of the, the Battle of Eastern Solomons later on. But yeah, and and the fact, too, that Spruance plays such a prominent part in the remainder of the war, you know, it just seems natural. Well, of course, he won Midway because, you know, he's in command right. of, of Fifth Fleet. Yeah, Fifth this Fleet. This is his ascension. Right, exactly. Yeah, but in well. truth, um, you know, Fletcher made a number of the important decisions early in the battle. Um, and Fletcher was a very self-effacing, modest kind of guy. It was perfectly conceivable that with Yorktown having been knocked out, he would raise his flag in Astoria, 
and hustle over to Task Force 16 and resume command. Absolutely. You know, go aboard the Enterprise, raise his flag there and say, I'm in charge now. Mm. But instead, when Spruance reaches out to Fletcher and says, what are your orders? Fletcher realizes that Spruance has got this thing under control and he radios back. You know, I have no instructions. I will conform to your movements, which is an incredibly unegotistical thing for an admiral to do. But that shows you a little bit about what Fletcher was like as a person. Mm. And he was he was a three star at this point. Right. And Spruance was was. two stars. So that is very remarkable. Yeah. Very gracious. Mm. He Fletcher kind of gets shoved to the to the back alley too. You know, he, yeah. he sees, of course he sees action at Guadalcanal and, and, and people wrongly, in my opinion, and we'll get to this when we get to Guadalcanal in future episodes or the season on Guadalcanal, really. Mm. He, he's wrongly pinned on being, he's the scapegoat for the Navy. Right. Pulling out. And that, that wasn't his fault, man. No, he was well, ordered to get the hell out of there. So, and this is forward projecting, but really, the you know the bad guy, in my opinion, is is Richmond Kelly Turner. You know, mm-hmm. there never would have been any any kerfuffle about uh, Fletcher would withdrawing when he did if Turner hadn't gotten his own command blown out of the water at the Battle of Savo Island. But that is neither here nor there. <laughs> Let us stay with Midway. Yeah, let's my, do that. My violent loathing for Turner will be suppressed briefly. Anyway, Nimitz, I think. On the on the Spruance matter and and Spruance plays into Mitchell as well, of course. The um, Nimitz takes Spruance as his deputy. Yes, following yep. Midway, right? So there was there was the, the interplay between King looking for an excuse to bury Fletcher <laughs> and Nimitz looking for an opportunity to elevate. Spruance. And I think those played hand in glove with the, the narrative and how it would evolve over time. And of oh, course, sure. Spruance later, you know, really, uh, you know, doing great work as the commander of Fifth Fleet uh, yeah. added to his legacy. I just think all sure. of those interplay with Spruance's ascension yeah. and, and Fletcher being forgotten to history as it pertains to Midway. Um, yeah. And of course, Halsey put his trust in Spruance when Halsey got sick and couldn't partake in the Battle of Midway as well. So yeah. all of these factors, I think, play. Yeah, they all line and up. That, and, and add to Spruance's credibility as we evolve into the Mitcher story, which you were just about right. to introduce. Yeah. So, so Mitcher is CEO of Hornet. He's commanding officer of Hornet. His CAG is a gentleman that we uh, talked about in the last, well, last two episodes. Stan uh, Hope Ring. Stan Hope Ring. And Ring, of course, leads the infamous flight to nowhere where, you know, Hornet, he takes all of Hornet's SPDs, all that heavy weight, that killing power that McCluskey unleashes on on Kido Butai. Ring takes him out, you know, on a joyride well, to, to Midway yeah, to Island. The, to the yeah. west. And then when he gets back and Mitcher writes his AAR after the event, there is a very definite cover-up. He absolutely, I'm, okay, envision this conversation, if you will. Mark comes down to the flight deck. Stan, where are you going to fly to this morning? I'm not telling you, Mark. I'll tell you when I get back. Exactly. Okay, cool. No, Never happened. <laughs> no, Mark Mitcher knew exactly where that air group was going. I'm going to look way. for that missing air group of two carriers that couldn't yes. possibly be with the two that we already know about. Right. That's what's going on there. And the, mm-hmm. and the, honestly, the kernel for that screw up again, as we mentioned, is contained in Nimitz's operational plan, which posits that there are going to be two Japanese carrier group operating. Mm-hmm. So but Mitcher is making this this leap of faith that, well, because I know that they're going to be operating in two groups, I will go and look for that second group, which has yet to be detected. And, you know, he's swinging for the fences. And Trent Trent Hone makes the case that this is the kind of an error that that Nimitz is willing to forgive because Mitcher is being aggressive. And, okay, I buy that. He's not bunting. He's swinging. He's swinging, and the fact that he is not apprising his senior officer of his intent to swing mm-hmm. is not okay. <laughs> That's know? right. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I'm not conforming to your directions, uh, to your movements, yes. Admiral Spruance. 
Now, I'm going to go my way because right. I think I know better than you because you're not an aviator. You're not an whatever. aviator, right. and I am, and I don't yeah. want to take yeah orders mm. from from a bunch of yeah a bunch of black shoes. Black so shoes. anyway, yeah, as you're as you say, Seth, there's a definite cover up, and this is explicitly noted. Uh, well, not explicitly, but but Spruance makes the comment uh, on his own action report that if you are interested in you know. If you've got the Enterprise report and the Hornet report to pick from mm-hmm. as to where your facts are coming from, you should choose Enterprise. Enterprise report, yeah. yeah. And basically, he's accusing him of not telling the truth yeah, without that. saying those words. Mm-hmm. Do we know of any other instance in World War II, United States naval history, where something of this magnitude occurs, where, where somebody... It's a blatant cover up. The boss knows about it. Yeah. And yet the dude is still there. Yeah. I'm not, 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 I can't think of it. Wait, I can't think of it. Naval history that doesn't include M- MacArthur. Okay. Um, yeah. No, 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 no. World War II U.S. <laughs> Navy, not Navy, Doug Mack. No. In Nimitz's AOR. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know of any. Well, and so this raises so. a really interesting sort of question because. Craig Simons actually made this point just this weekend down at the Nimitz Museum at the symposium that after the battle, um, you know, Spruance comes back to Hawaii. He's now Nimitz's number two. These guys spend a lot of time together. They take long walks mm-hmm. in the afternoon. On They're the both walkers and swimmers. Yes. And-, yes. Mm-hmm. and so they were in close contact and it's absolutely there's no way that they didn't talk about this. Absolutely. Absolutely not. And Mitchell is put in, to use the Navy expression, in hack. Yeah. Okay. So, so the thing is that Nim, you know, Mitchell has already got his ticket punched even before the battle. He's been vetted. He's going to be promoted to admiral. But what ends up happening is instead of being given a carrier task force as his command, he is instead shifted over to a patrol wing uh, command. And mm. you're right. Yeah. Kind of put in the doghouse temporarily. This raises the, this is supposition, but it means that not only did Mitcher's boss, Spruance, know what happened, Nimitz knew what happened too. He did, yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely did. And so that raises sort of a weird moral issue for me. I, I absolutely maintain that Chester Nimitz was the finest naval officer that this country has ever produced, except for Bill Toady. And, <laughs> um, and, and, Furthermore, I mean, Nimitz is, uh, I think, just a very honest, forthright guy. He's got yeah. tremendous character. Okay. And this is the one instance I know of where you kind of have to wonder what Nimitz's motives were to just kind of shove this under the rug and not bring it out into daylight. Mm-hmm. Well, you lost credibility with the Bill Toady statement, but the um, um, I, I agree with you. And Nimitz was... You know, obviously he was court-martialed as an ensign yeah. and on the USS Decatur grounding. Mm-hmm. And he, and he the, only, the only time I know of that he talked about that was when McVeigh was released from um, house arrest when he was CNO. And, and one of the reporters said, do you know anybody that's ever been court-martialed that went on to make flag rank? And he said, you're looking at one. You're looking at one. He's me, right? right? <clears throat> but the... He, he would go out of his way to rehabilitate officers. He was big on giving second chances. He was. And yeah. I will say, though, in this case, sometimes there's this thing at the academy. Too, really? Yeah. In this yeah. case, there's this thing at the academy called the honor code. And the honor code has to do with telling the truth. Right. And this, you know, uh, sin that Mitchell committed would have gotten anybody fired. Right. And so... It, the Nimitz's willingness to give Mitchell a second can- chance in this case, I guess, is is justified later in the war. But there's a conflict. I don't want to t- talk too much about it later when, uh, you know, in the Battle of Marianas, right, mm-hmm. the Philippine Sea, right? I'm sorry, that where there's a little conflict between Mitchell and Spruance again. Oh, that- but, had to be informed by that previous experience for sure. Had to be, right. But yeah. it is like, Rather than saying, I'm, I'm going to bless my lucky stars that I'm allowed to con- contribute in this war, you know, going forward, 
Mitchell, I don't know, takes a little bit of it, it becomes arrogant, a little bit of chip on the shoulder about being placed in charge of that patrol wing. And, and it really shows a defect of personality, in my view, that again, Nimitz overlooks. Yeah. And I cannot understand this. Some of this, I think, is driven by the fact that um, if you really start digging too deeply in what happened to Hornet that morning, you open this huge can of worms because uh, then you have to start looking into things around, okay, Stanhope, what happened to your air group? Uh, and But now I have to look at, at John Waldron's performance too, okay? So yeah, right. we have a bona fide American war hero who gallantly attacked with his command, died, got his whole command wiped out. Okay, so he's a war hero, but he yeah. was also blatantly insubordinate to Stanhope Ring yeah. in, in the air. So, Committed you know, mutiny, in essence, right? Essentially, yeah. And know. we're not going to prosecute him for that. No. He's um, a hero. So, you know, it starts getting really messy, and, and I, I kind of feel like Nimitz just didn't want to open that can of worms, did not want to display the, the dirty laundry that underlay what was a much-needed victory in the midst of a really bad season of, of Allied defeat. So, you know, that may have played into. And Nimitz had profoundly advanced political instincts. Yes. And he, his, his, his willingness to put up with MacArthur's, you know, right. excesses is an example. You know, yeah. he, could have, he could have been very, you know, <clears throat> provocative with the president about the lies that MacArthur was telling. Yeah. But, but he figured, which is the worst sin, you know, correcting that or and potentially, you know, slowing down the progress of the war. Right. Or, or letting it ride. And he it's a, time and time again, let these kinds of excesses ride. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess he this is a much less, much lower level sin than what those that were being committed by MacArthur. Right. So I guess that, um, you know, he will he willingly let this one ride, too. Yeah. In any well, case, an interesting, we, interesting you talk, time. You talk about Midway being a much needed victory. And I mean, let's be perfectly honest it absolutely without a doubt certainly was the first six months of the war are scattershot with disaster after disaster there's a few rays of sunshine here and there but even there they're immediately clouded up by you know crap um however you know midway is often looked at as the turning point of the pacific war wait we're getting there hold on just wait (laughs) hold on but let's talk about the actual implications of this battle. What does Midway, and, and I'll start on this, what does Midway actually allow the United States to do? Number one, first and foremost, it buys us some time. It, it buys us, us being the United States, some time, some time to kind of catch our breath, take a step back and go, Whew, all right, cool. We can, A, we can do this. We can beat these guys. B, we have some really, really smart guys in the intelligence department of the United States Navy. Three, we've got some really talented aviators in flying off of our flight decks. And four, now we got a little time. What do we want to do now? And we'll, we'll get into Guadalcanal later. But the big thing I think that people don't understand when it comes to Midway as far as the United States Navy United States period is concerned is that no, it didn't all of a sudden everything went to to victory after this because it certainly did not far, far from it. But what it allowed us to do was step back, take a breath and plan things that were going to work out in the end, in the very near future, probably a little too sooner than they should have admittedly. But, but things, you know, things were able, we were able to do things now that we could not have done before. And that's the thing that that I have always taken away from the Battle of Midway, as far as the U.S. is concerned, is that we were allowed to do what we wanted to do for for the most part after this. Right. To me, the the most important short term change is that the Japanese came into this war with a decided advantage in carrier strength in the Pacific. And in the aftermath of this battle, the Americans have clawed their way back to rough parity with the Japanese in terms of flight decks. 
And, you know, we live in this world where for the past 80 years, the U.S. Navy has had just sort of this unchallengeable writ of naval supremacy on the world's oceans. That was not the case in the Pacific. And in the dark days of early 1942, just being able to claw back to parity, that doesn't sound very exciting, but it was damned exciting in, in that context. And you're right. It allows us to take a breather. And it allows us to get out of this sort of defensive crouch that we've been in for the first six months and begin thinking about how we want to prosecute the war. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I got a couple of things I'd like to say. First, in the immediate aftermath of this battle, the importance of it was not recognized, certainly by the American public. I, if I you read uh, like the New York Times, Three weeks after the Battle of Midway occurs, there is an opinion piece in the New York Times where the editorial board of the Times, which is a, a paper that is normally fairly favorable to FDR, comes out and says, this war is too big and complex for the president to manage effectively, and he should turn over his role as commander in chief to a military person to run the military side of the war. Commander in chief of all of the armed forces, right? Some, don't have a civilian do it anyway, despite what the Constitution says. Don't right. have a civilian, don't have the president, have a military person. Bingo. And didn't somebody suggest it should be MacArthur? Uh, that's not in the opinion piece. And okay, I right. can't imagine that the, that the New York Times would have advocated for that. Yeah, yeah, but there right. it is. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing is that there's, there's another uh, opinion piece of, about a week before that, also in the Times, that, okay, well, you know, we we barely managed to to beat the Japanese off at, at Midway, but they're going to be back and they'll be stronger the next time they return. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for the man and woman on the street at this point in time, it's like, OK, well, that's great. But everything in the rest of the world is still going to ha- hell in a handbasket. The victory was not yet viewed in the same way that we view it now at 80 right. years removed. Sure. And, mo- and most of them aren't, truthfully. I mean, truth right. be told. It know. takes a while to sort of synthesize that. Yeah, it's got to marinate for a while, you know? Yeah. The the other thing I would say, you know, if we start getting into the, the import of the battle, one of the things that strikes me about the Pacific War up until this point is how episodic it is in nature for the mm-hmm. Americans. That, you know, we've had a number of naval battles at this point. We've done some carrier raids around the perimeter. But there's no point in the Pacific at this point that we are in day-to-day contact with the Japanese. That was The episodic nature of the war was good for us in the beginning. It's starting to become bad for us now because the productive spigots are turning on back in the States. Mm-hmm. And if you are the larger, heavier, stronger opponent in the long term, you know, the way this war is going to end is we're going to have to shift it into an attritional mode of combat. Exactly. We have to begin grinding up Japan's military so that we can eventually either get our air force adjacent to the home islands and bomb it into ruins, or we are going to physically invade and occupy Japan. The only way, even though we are larger than Japan, they are a modern industrialized nation state. And the way that you win wars is through an attritional mode of combat where yep. we are grinding their military to pieces. We ain't got that now. Right. We need what I call a sausage grinder. You know, I need there to be some place in the Pacific, and it doesn't even really matter where, where every morning I'm going to roll out of bed in the morning knowing it's going to be a great day because I'm going to be killing Japanese soldiers, shooting down their aircraft, and hopefully having a high percentage chance of getting into a naval battle on a fairly frequent basis so that I can start that attritional grind. Yep. We're fast forwarding again to Guadalcanal. That's what that campaign is going to give us. Absolutely. There is no Guadalcanal, though, without Midway to make Amen. that. Amen. I've said that for mm. years is that if if Midway does not occur. Well, let me let me rephrase that. If Midway does not end the way that it does and that we emerge with still two aircraft carriers afloat yes. and the Japanese have none from this event. Yeah. There is no Operation Operation Watchtower, or, the, mm-hmm. or at least certainly not on August 7th, 1942. Correct. There's no way in hell that the United States is going to take that kind of a risk knowing that, you know, we got pounded off the off the island of Midway and we lost, Correct. you know, two, three, whatever the hell, you know, yeah. may have been lost. There's absolutely no way that the march 
towards Japan starts in August of 42. It may start the following year. Right. Maybe. Yeah, but it's not it's happening. Hard to anticipate. Yeah, it's so not that happening. Is, that is an interesting strategic view, John. And I got to say that I hadn't thought of it that way until you just suggested it. And That's I agree true. with you 100%. Yeah. If I take a grand strategic view, I would pose that the battle had uh, a greater impact on the outcome of the Pacific War by affecting someone who wasn't even there. And if I can play back, remember that when Nimitz was selected to be the Pacific Fleet commander, he wasn't Jip Poe, uh, Singh Poe yet at this point, I don't think. Um, when he was selected to be the Pacific Theater commander, it was Roosevelt who said, tell Nimitz to get out there and stay there until the, the war is won. If, if Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, had selected the guy to go out there. I'm not sure who would have selected Nimitz. And King was kind of cautiously optimistic, but still considered Nimitz a fixer and yeah. wasn't sure he was the right guy for the long term. And Nimitz saw this and said to his wife, I'm yep. not sure I'm going to last six months. Yep. After Midway, I think everybody viewed Nimitz differently. Yep. So in my view, the outcome, the, the battle of Midway cemented Nimitz's position as the right guy for that job and had in that way had a huge impact on the outcome of the war because I share your opinion of Nimitz as the best naval officer the United States Navy has ever created or yeah. you know and so if if for some reason something would have gone bad and Nimitz would have been removed from that position I think it could have gone very badly for us so yeah. in my view Midway's impact cemented Nimitz as Sink Pack, which is really what helped us win the war in the timeline that we did. Well, so, I mean, I think that's right. If, yeah. if, if we lose Midway or lose at Midway and King King's going to yank Nimitz, in my opinion, because he he was barely convinced yeah. by the by the intel to let Nimitz go do what he wanted to do in the first place. So mm -hmm. as Nimitz sends his people out there and we get bushwhacked. Yeah. Nimitz is not in command yeah. anymore. He's not. He right. knew that. Yeah. I yeah. think that's right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to, again, to sort of sum up, my, the argument that Tony and I made in Shattered Sword is that the Battle of Midway is the most single important um, naval battle in the Pacific. And I would argue the most important naval that. battle in all of World War II, not that. because of its immediate effects, because it is sort of the gift that keeps on giving it allows us to initiate what is going to be the decisive campaign of 1942, which is Guadalcanal. It's decisive it, campaign of the war. I, I Yeah, I would buy that, right. too. Mm. In the Pacific, yep. And, you know, for sure. Yeah. yeah, in the Pacific, yeah. And, I mean, there, there's far-reaching effects to to what happens at Midway, you know, in terms of our victory, not the least of which is, is Guadalcanal. And it, it, it allows us to do the things we want to do. But there's small things, too, that come home to roost in – really in 44, 43, late 43, early 44, is that if you look at a lot of the older, and I say older, there are pilots on the U.S. carriers who were there pre-December 7th, 1941, or shortly thereafter even. Most of those guys, and by most, I'm talking like probably 85, 90% right after Midway, they are pulled out. They're gone. Guys, well, Dick Best was out because of medical but yeah. but you got guys like Dusty Cleese, people like that. All these early pilots in the Pacific War, scouting six, bombing six, uh, bombing three, Max Leslie, all those people, they're pulled out. And what are they sent to do? Well, Max Leslie is a little higher. Teach. Exactly. They, they are sent home to teach. They're sent home to teach guys getting their wings of gold how to kill Japanese ships with a dive bomber. Right. And that paid or, huge or, dividends. It's the oh, teach a man to fish. Uh, Look at, the, look at the efficiency yeah. in 1944 and 45. Look what happens. Yeah. These yeah. are the guys that are out there killing the Japanese ships that were taught by the guys who killed the carriers yeah. at Midway and, right. and earlier. And, and that is huge. And that's something that people, I don't think, you know, yeah. put in and a perspective. To, to the, throw sort of a, a modern day analog on that, um, one of the things I've been writing about with respect to Ukraine is you have two countries that have an entirely different outlook on how long and grim this conflict is going to be. And uh, Ukraine is 
you know, establishing the training pipeline that they need to sustain a military effort if needed over multiple years of time. Whereas Russia mm-hmm. to this thing with the view that this is going to be a multi-day smash and grab and it's going to be done. Those same models applied in World War II. The Axis powers did not prepare for a long-term war. Whereas to your point, Seth, you're absolutely right. The U.S. is like, this is going to be a multi-year thing. It's going to be horrid. And in order to have that robust pipeline, we are going to staff it with combat veterans. We're going to make sure they don't die uh, on the front line. So, that, yeah, we mm-hmm. can train these new guys and, and we're going to have this enormous pipeline of pilots. And it pays yeah. huge dividends in the time frame. That yeah. you, yeah. And you look, you look at the Guadalcanal carrier battles, he's from Solomon Santa Cruz. Most of those pilots, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, especially Eastern Solomons, they are Midway veterans or Coral mm-hmm. Sea veterans. And but they're the junior pilots. They're the junior pilots in the ready room at Midway. And yeah, good point. good point. They're 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 the guys who you know they were they were ensigns or JGs at most, right? And they're the ones leading the squadrons now, and with mixed results. But but still, they're 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 the ones that are there. You know, guys yep. like like you know uh, Bill Roberts and, and and Dusty Cleese and people like that. They're not there, and they never do go back. Right. Well, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. But, you know, and then and then you see at Santa Cruz, you start to see some of those Coral Sea veterans start to reappear. And then guys like Sweet Vet as a uh, Jack Lepla, the people like that who'd seen action, maybe at Coral Sea went home and were rerouted. But still, those Midway veterans are the older guys. They're gone. They're teaching the younger cats. And those are the guys, Hal Buell, those are the guys that come back. Even though Hal didn't see combat at Midway, he saw a ton of combat at Guadalcanal for the rest of the war. These are the guys that are leading the squadrons in 44 and 45. Right. And it's huge. Yeah, that that, that illustrates for me uh, my own approach to history. I'm not as good at individual stories as a lot of historians are because I tend to come in at more of an operational level. And I view World War II very firmly as being a contest between systems, national scale mm-hmm. systems. Sure. Mm-hmm. And systems of mobilization are absolutely crucial in this war. And what you've just illustrated again is that the Americans took a much more rational approach to building that system and that pipeline that's going to allow us to exert the maximum amount of national power that we can. The Japanese, on the other hand, do not take that same approach. They are going to keep their frontline pilots on the front lines until they die. Yeah, I always and- say it, you fly until you die. Fly until you die. And that is not an intelligent approach to um, utilizing your human capital uh, to right. the, the best possible advantage uh, over what is going to end up being a multi-year conflict. Right. Well, In many uh, cases, it was accelerate. Yeah. Not death, okay. Right. Absolutely. Their, their approach was. Yeah. Well, what does the battle, I mean, aside from the obvious, what does the battle do, the loss of the battle mean to the Japanese right now? Is yeah. it the punch in the in the stones that that we all think it is? I mean, you lose four carriers. You got your your national face of your Imperial Japanese Navy, Yamamoto, who's got a lot of yeah. egg on his face right now. Right. What is what does this mean to Yamamoto personally, professionally? What does this mean to the IJN now? Yeah. Well, uh, this really to my mind, is an important watershed for the Imperial Navy. This marks the the point in time where the Imperial Navy and, and frankly, the entire Imperial military goes into La La Land, where because we cannot face up to the reality, um, the emperor initiates what is going to be a huge cover-up around what actually happened in this battle. The, the conscious decision is made that we are going to portray this to the Japanese people as having been a victory. And so we'll admit to one of the carriers being lost, but and then we'll sort of shovel another one under the you know rug in a communique a few months down the road. But they're never going to come out and admit that this was a huge defeat. Um, and they take extraordinary efforts to, to kind of make that cover up stick. When the, the fleet makes port, Wounded crewmen are shuffled into special hospitals where they are walled off from the public and they're not allowed to talk. A lot of the remaining survivors are sent to billets down in the South Pacific where they will end up dying. Um, so there's a, you know, a total news blackout put on the entire thing. The emperor even issues an imperial rescript 
you know, designating Midway as, as a victory. That means that in terms of command personnel, you, yeah, you mentioned Yamamoto. Well, if this is a great victory, I can't very well cashier Yamamoto because this is a dude that spends a lot of his time answering fan mail from school children. Right. If this guy is suddenly cashiered, there are going to be people asking questions. And, you know, I thought you told me this was a victory. So there are no real changes as far as the, the public face of the personnel that are involved here. There are some changes in their carrier doctrine. They very much, you know, take a hard look at that and say, okay, refueling in the hangars, that's a bad thing. Uh, rearming in the hangars, also a bad thing. So they start making some changes uh, to how they're going to fight their carrier battles in the future. And we'll see some of those in, in the later uh, Solomon's carrier battles. But now they're kind of playing catch up, right? In terms of doctrine, they're behind the eight ball here and they're kind of having to scramble. So... You know, in terms of grand strategy, it really does not mark any sort of a watershed on their part. They're like, okay, well, that was a hard loss, but we're still going to be on the offensive. Right. So very quickly, you're going to see that they're going to initiate a ground campaign in New Guinea, uh, which you can think of as really the Battle of Coral Sea Part Two, the land sequel, where we're going to advance forces across the Owen Stanley Mountains and try to take Fort Moresby from the land. So it doesn't really check. It does not check their aggression. Right. Right. And that and that is precisely why, precisely why you ready for it. Da, 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 da. Midway is not the turning point of the Pacific War. It's not. Yeah. It's a it's a time buyer for the United States. And if you look again, you look at what you just said, New Guinea, but you look at Guadalcanal. Sure. This, IJN is anything but beat yeah. in the seas off Guadalcanal. Quite the opposite. Absolutely. They yeah. send larger task forces and correct me if I'm wrong, John larger task forces at certain times to attack the Americans than they had at Midway in, in, in parcels. In terms of carrier yeah, flight decks and that sort of yeah. thing. No, I think, I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, they certainly are intent upon continuing to work their way down the line of the Solomon Islands and threaten mm-hmm. the supply lines that are going to Australia, which in the words of Rich Frank is like stepping on the allies sciatic nerve. I mean, we are going to react violently to that and it's going to happen real soon. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I, I hate the word turning point in any case. I think it's one of those slippery phrases. You know, what the hell does that really mean? Right. Um, and to an extent, I think the usage of turning point betrays a lack of understanding a, around what this war is. The traditional usage or definition of turning point or decisive battle used to be that in the context of a war, The person that wins this decisive battle is going to win that war. Mm. I don't think that model is applicable to World War II, that the scale of forces is so much larger that, you know, win or lose at Midway, who's going to win the Pacific War? Most likely the Americans. Mm. Um, And so decisive battle is this sort of chimera that the Japanese pursue throughout the Pacific war, you know, if we can just get the Americans into this decisive battle and we'll beat their Navy and that'll turn everything around. That mm-hmm. model of combat just does not pertain to this kind of war. That was their position all the way through Leyte. And from a leadership standpoint, it cemented our leadership, right? Because we won yeah. and their refusal to admit that they lost mm-hmm. cemented their leadership which turned out to be good for us, right? And so, um, well, good and good, and, but ultimately bad. I would yeah. argue um, when we fast forward all the way to uh, war termination scenarios in June, yeah, July, yeah, yeah. August of nineteen forty-five. Yeah, you know, I, I give a lecture on um, uh, the dropping the atomic bomb. And one of the slides I often fit in there is taken from Monty Python's uh, The Holy Grail, where King Arthur is in the middle of his combat with the Black Knight in the middle of the forest. And he's chopped off the Black Knight's arms and legs. And, you know, still going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Black Knight's like it's only a flesh wound. Right. This is literally the mental model that the Japanese put themselves in for the rest of the war, where they convinced themselves that, okay, we lost that one, but I know that we did bigger damage to the Americans than we received, right? Right. How do you terminate a war 
with a party that is insane, that is living in an alternate reality, mm-hmm. that starts becoming a real issue as we go later on. In this <clears throat> it's again, the same thing in Europe, Ukraine, too. Ukraine same and Russia right now. Um, there's, it's, it's an apt point yeah. as well, right, with the Russians. Um, and, and the truth is that it's, it's always the losers that pick the time when the war is over. Yep. Right. That, mm-hmm. Again, going back to King Arthur and the, and the Black Knight, you know, does, does Arthur have the ability to kill the Black Knight? Absolutely. But does he have the ability to compel him to surrender? I no. can't give any mechanism whereby he does. No. So, no. Yeah. By the way, Monty Python is, is, has plenty of um, opportunities to, in relevance as it pertains to modern warfare. So yeah. I would have picked the same scenario, scene of that movie uh, to make that point. I'll bite your legs off. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the Japanese, what we're going to see ongoing here is the Japanese are going to lie and lie lie to themselves about the level of casualties and attrition that they are inflicting on the Americans ongoing. Mm. That in their world, they can't imagine a scenario wherein we're not inflicting losses of three or four to one every time we go into combat against the Americans. And it just it kills them from a standpoint of being able to make rational strategic decisions uh, as we go further in the war. Yep. Yep. And I mean, it's, 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 it's what you see, you said with a losing, with the losing party, the Nazis do the same thing, you know, the Germans do the same thing in Europe, but it's, in my opinion too, not only is it, it does that propaganda affect the military, as you just said, it also, you know, it affects the people. It's the will of the people to fight. Right. You know, I've made an argument that, you know, there would have never been a popular uprising against the emperor in Japan. I don't see that ever happening. I, I really don't. I don't see the population of Japan saying, Hey, you know what? Up yours, dude, we're coming for you. I just don't see that happening. Military uprising? No, civilian. Maybe. Yeah. Civilian. Yeah, civilian. I don't uprising. see a civilian doing it. Yeah. I mean, no, the military did. There was a coup or there was an yeah, attempt. There, was. there absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting it's an interesting point. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, there's no crystal ball that, that no, can give us not. the answer to that. But, not. but you're, you're certainly not crazy to make that argument. Yeah, you got to keep the people fooled, man. You got to keep the people thinking that 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 what you're doing is the good thing. Otherwise, you right. know, going to be harder to get them to go to war. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I, I do think, and again, this is fast forwarding to the end of the war. I, I do think that there were demonstrable signs that not only Japanese civilian morale, but military morale was beginning to crack. Absolutely. That if you look at percentages of their military forces being taken, uh, POW, for instance, you see a decided increase in that on uh, Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And when I just say, say decided, I mean, okay, so, you know, the 2000 POW, instead of 20. Well, yeah. yeah, but, you know, if you grind the numbers and I'm a numbers guy, you know, mm-hmm. you look at campaigns like Peleliu, where 0.2 percent of the Japanese forces right. take POW, where you get to Okinawa and it's about 8 mm-hmm. percent. And some of that is funny money because some of those were conscripted Okinawan civilians and yada, yada. And again, it's like, OK, well, whoop de doo you know, so 92 percent of them fought to the death as opposed to 99. Exactly. But still, it's it's a percentage. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, anyway. it's Yeah. Well, again, not to get too far into it, but yep, yep. a point I've made for years is that after Operation Meeting House, the firebombing of Tokyo on March 10th, 11th, 1945, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I mean, the, over 110,000 people killed, you know, the bodies are damming the river, right? The dead yeah. bodies are damming the river. Yeah. Uh, Hirohito goes on a tour of the city yes. like five, six days after. Yes. And the God Emperor is cruising through the streets of Tokyo and the people could give a rat's ass. Yeah. Like, they don't they don't care. Yeah. They do the 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 you know the, the deity himself is out there and they could care less. At that sure. point, in my opinion, the citizenry of Tokyo are like, we are done. We're yeah. done. So but anyway. regardless. <laughs> yeah. I uh I, I hasten to 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 bring up another topic because we'll talk about it for another hour and a half. <laughs> but I, I I think we've we've put a nice, neat little bow on this Titanic struggle. It really was, you know. I'm not it, sure you can put a bow on the Battle of Midway, but yeah, uh, yeah. it's 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 there's so much you could talk about, mm. you know, and and doing it in three episodes is 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 a lot to do. But even hell, even doing that, we left a lot of stuff out, you know. Right, we left a lot of stuff out, but. Uh, 
Uh, John, do you, do you have anything else you want to throw into the no, mix? I, you know, I got, I got my big picture uh, blows in there. As long as I'm able to talk about sausage grinders and uh, attritional models of warfare, you know, I'm, I'm a happy man. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of looking over here on the, uh, on the, your timetable synopsis here. And yeah, I, I, I do think the, the last thing, you know, we talked about solidifying the position of, of Nimitz. Uh, it also, the victory in this battle solidifies the position of King. Yeah. Um, you know, King is under tremendous pressure at this point in the war because the Eastern seaboard has been, you know, turned into a shooting gallery by German U-boats. And so he, he's getting it from George Marshall, his counterpart in the army, FDR piles on uh, mm. in June, actually, and says, you know, what is the deal with uh, not having gotten convoys starting up? So, you know, King is under tremendous pressure. And I think the fact that he is able to then turn around and say, OK, the most important theater that the Navy is involved in, namely the Pacific, is now clearly in good hands because my guy Nimitz is out there doing his thing. So that's one less thing I have to sort of worry about in the near term, although Guadalcanal is going to turn that around again. But, but again, it does make King look more competent because he has won a major battle. His designated commander. And he does take loosen the reins a bit on Nimitz and, and For give him sure. more authority, right? Well, it, so, it allows it allows that Midway allows King to you know we said it buys buys the United States time and it, it mm-hmm. does, but it allows King to push for that Guadalcanal campaign that yes. you're going to see and, two and, months after the termination of Midway. Midway ends theoretically, technically on June seventh. Yes, Guadalcanal's August seventh, and you can't talk about that without talking about King's basically leveraging the British des- desire for inactivity. I know that's harsh, but I mean, that's okay, true. if you guys aren't going to move fast uh, on a European invasion, we got to use those forces somewhere to move the needle and let's uh, do something in the Pacific. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, we could definitely talk about the, the July fallout uh, from the, the British finally scuttling the mm. notion of a cross channel invasion there, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but until 1944, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. And, and we didn't talk about King's reluctance to go to to basically pound his chest in the media right. with uh, the victory, opening a window for somebody else to do that uh, as it pertains to Midway. <laughs> um, <laughs> who might that be? I don't know. I don't know. I think we did an episode, episode 103, by the way. The Yes. Legend of yeah. Dugout Doug. Dugout Doug. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, you got anything else? No, I mean, you know, King said from his interface with the press, don't talk to them until the war's over, then tell them who won. <laughs> and um, and, I, and I do think the, the, the Navy lost some points with the American public that was later regained. But I mean, um, because I, I think there was still a question as to the Navy's competence and ability in both theaters. And so here's one place where, you know, had he been a little bit more proactive with the press, might've lowered some antibodies as it pertains to Navy leadership globally. And, um, and somebody did step into that vacuum, but we don't need to go there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. Not not now. All right. Well, with that, uh, I want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcasts and give us a rating and a review. We certainly would appreciate it. Uh, Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. And also look us up on Facebook, like and subscribe to our page as well. If you have a question, comment or suggestion, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, once again, I am Seth Paradin. Bill. And I'm Bill Toady, retired Navy captain. It was a real pleasure to have you on, John, for all three episodes. And uh, you added great depth to our conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a very enjoyable time. Well, John, if it's cool with you, man, I'd I'd love to call on you again. We're going to do Guadalcanal soon. So (laughs) I would be delighted. Um, I'm uh, particularly when we get into the two naval battles. Yeah. In November, I, you know, this is obviously the subject of of my writing on 1942. I'd love to be there.
So, oh yeah, I want to I want to talk about battle wagons slinging shells at each other. You know, at a, I know, I know, that's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, we shiver with delight, but actually, that battle is terrifying too. Oh, so for sure, absolutely right. We can talk about that later. Oh, we will, we will. All right. Well, anyway, uh, thank you guys very much for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks. Take care.